Turn in the scripture today to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue on in our series on the instruction of the Lord to us through 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. We do have handouts for you. I was joking, we have the battle of the handouts today. You ladies, I think, got Proverbs 31, and this is 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, and I'm going to ask you to contemplate uh, portions of Scripture here later on uh, toward the end of the message. If you end up contemplating Proverbs 31, that's perfectly fine, but uh, the one that I'm going to be speaking on this morning is 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. From 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 12, Peter is telling his fellow Jewish Christian believers how they're to live in various life situations as sojourners, pilgrims, travelers through this world to their true home, their eternal home, their home in heaven. For Jewish people, the focus of their lives and the promises God has given them was always on the promised land, Canaan, Israel, the Holy Land. God had given promises about 2,000 years earlier to Abraham. He confirmed the promises to three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He fulfilled the promises through Moses and Joshua, and the promises came into their glorious fullness in the reigns of David and Solomon in the Promised Land. With the promises about the land came conditions. With blessing I will bless you, with cursing I will curse you. God told the nation He would bless them in the land if they would obey Him and His word. The nation was told that God would curse them if they disobeyed and rebelled against Him. The blessing and cursing are listed for us in Leviticus chapter 26 and then Deuteronomy 27 and 28. These blessings and cursings were later memorialized in Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal just a few years after the successful invasion of the promised land by Joshua and the new generation who came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. Half the tribes were on one side, half the tribes are on the other, and then plastered into the sides of Mount Ebal and Gerizim were the blessings on one mountain and the curses on another. Let's be clear. Salvation was then, is now, and will be by faith, trust, belief in God, who in His grace, His mercy, and His love saves us. In the Old Testament, the faith was in God fulfilling the promise that He would send a Savior, a Redeemer, an Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ. This Savior would crush the serpent's head. We are told in the scripture that this child would come through the Jewish people, through David's family, born of a virgin, be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 53 taught and teaches us that this servant would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace would be upon him and he would be cut off from the land of the living. This promised one would be our substitute. This is what the Old Testament believers were looking forward to. For dozens of generations, the concept of a substitute had been taught and enacted in Israel in the Jewish people's lives. Twice a day in the tabernacle, once in the morning, once in the evening, a lamb was slain. Daily, people brought their substitutionary sacrifices for their sin and trespasses to the tabernacle and later to the temple. Annually in the spring, the Passover lamb would be slain and the story of the substitute lamb for the firstborn repeated in every home in the land. Annually in the fall, the great day of atonement took place where a substitute goat was slain and the sins of a nation were confessed on the head of the scapegoat, with the goat being led to the wilderness, while all the people of Israel would afflict their souls for the sins that had been committed during that year and the intercession of the great high priest. 
The thought was their sins would be remembered no more as the scapegoat would be taken out into the wilderness. But this had to be repeated year after year after year. The concept of the substitute, someone taking your place. Instead of me dying, this animal dies in my place. That was firmly placed into the hearts and minds of the people of Israel. The Jewish people and all people, Gentiles, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Naaman, Nebuchadnezzar, the people of Nineveh, were saved by faith, believing in God and His promises. Through the darkest times of the judges, we have Othniel, Barak, Deborah, Hannah, Samuel. Through the sadness of the wayward kings of Israel and Judah, we have Obadiah, that is King Ahab's assistant, not the prophet Obadiah. Obadiah and 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. We have Micaiah, that is the prophet who told King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat the truth. We have Huldah the prophetess and so many others. In the time of the exile, we have Ezekiel, Baruch. He was the secretary for Jeremiah. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. And in the time of the return, the first return, we have Zerubbabel and thousands of others on that initial return. Ezra and hundreds of others in the second phase of the return. And then Nehemiah and the few men that were with him in the third phase of the return. All of these, everyone that I've mentioned, was saved by faith and by faith alone. There is no other way of salvation. There is nothing to be added to salvation. It is faith and faith alone. The standing of these faithful believers was completely secure. They were saved by faith. Their state, their personal circumstances, their place in the judgment of God's curses upon Israel and Judah, now that was something different. Obadiah, not the prophet, but the assistant to Ahab, had hid 100 prophets and was not experiencing the blessing of the Lord during his lifetime. There was such an intense drought and famine in the land that Obadiah was sent by Ahab to look for springs of water and grass so the animals would not die in Israel. He was a faithful believer. His circumstances were awful. The Scripture describes him as one that greatly feared the Lord. His standing and his state were two different things. His standing with God, a man who feared God greatly, and his salvation secure. His state, devastating. Under a wicked king, suffering to the point where the animals are going to die. No rain. No rain for three and a half years. Hannah. It was such a dark time in Israel's history and in her own personal dark time of her life, filled with grief because of the provocation of her husband's second wife because Hannah was not having any children of her own. Hannah comes to the gate of the tabernacle. And as she comes, perhaps Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were already preparing their menu for the day. Meat. Meat filled with blood and meat filled with fat, completely against God's directions. And perhaps they were just waking up from a time of fornication with some of the women that were at the door of the tabernacle. And she looks over at the side of the door and she sees a heavy, fat, overweight high priest sitting there. Instead of the bells ringing, as he's standing and doing the service of the high priest, it's silence. And Eli witnesses her desperate prayer. Hannah is a bright, shining star against the blackness of the time of judges and the time of sin there in Israel. Her standing was one thing, saved by faith. Her state was something else, something different. Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah all saw the severe judgment of God 
on Jerusalem. With the temple destroyed, the walls of Jerusalem tore down, and the land occupied by the enemies of Israel. Their state was terrible, difficult, challenging, but their standing was rock solid in the Lord. I've spoken about circumstantial situations, perhaps over which these people had no control. Let's talk about the personal standing and state. Jonah, one of the most successful of the prophets during the time of Jehoshaphat II in the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes. It's commented so for us in the Scripture. But then comes a direction from God to go to Nineveh. And in open, complete, absolute defiance and disobedience of the directives of God, Jonah goes the opposite way as far as he can. God intervenes. Jonah's standing is one thing. Saved, saved by faith. His state, personally, is something else. Openly disobedient to what God has for him. Elijah on Mount Hermon. What a day it was. (laughs) What a ministry Elijah has had. Looking into the Old Testament and seeing the curses that God was to bring upon them, he prayed earnestly and the rain stopped for that three and a half year period of time. And then he puts a challenge out to the prophets of Baal. Let's see who truly is God, Baal or the Lord God. And after this challenge takes place and Elijah is triumphant through the intervention of God, bringing rain, executing the priests of Baal, and then running 18 miles from Hermon to Jezreel in the midst of a rainstorm. And the word of one woman causes Elijah to become a coward. As you have done to the 450 priests today of Baal, so shall it be with you. You think you've murdered them? Well, I'm going to murder you. And Elijah runs and runs and runs 120 miles to the south, past Beersheba, out into the wilderness near Sinai. And this individual, as far as his standing, secure, an example given to us in the New Testament of someone who's faithful to God. Elijah, in cowardly exhaustion, pleads to God to let him die. And then selfishly says, I, only I am left. It's just me, God, me and me alone. What an awful state for Elijah to be in. A hero of God. And this is the kind of man we have. Moses was under instruction, direct instruction by God during that time of the wilderness, speak to the rock. In his anger, he then disobeys God and he strikes the rock, not once but twice, and water flows out. And the consequences of that for Moses are profound. Not allowed to enter into the promised land, the blessing that God has for him. These three individuals are examples and we could go through so many more whose standing is secure, their salvation is secure, but their state, how they are either circumstantially or personally in relationship with God, is something very different. Now the promises for Israel are locked up in the land, but Peter is now teaching them something brand new. To these Jewish Christians... Jews that are now Christians, born-again Christians, Peter says in the beginning of his letter, they have a new life, a new citizenship, a new home, a new inheritance, a new destination, a new set of priorities. These Jewish Christians are now in the church. They're in the bride of Christ. Heaven is now their home. 
A mansion is being built for them there by Jesus Christ. That's where they're now to make their earthly investments of time, energy, resources. As Christians, they are no longer earthly people with their future bound up in the promised land. Their future is in heaven with their Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. They are a heavenly people. All of these things are said to us this morning, dear believers. We are a heavenly people with a heavenly home, a heavenly future, a heavenly set of priorities which guide our actions and thoughts. That's why you're here today on this first day of the week. We're reminding ourselves of our Savior. We're thinking about our treasure, our home. We're in the work of equipping ourselves to tell others about the opportunity to have their home in heaven by receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. We're equipping ourselves with what we need in this world as we sojourn here. That's the purpose of this message today and the messages we've had the past few weeks. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Angels will beckon us to heaven's open door, and we can't feel at home in this world anymore. This is the teaching Peter is giving to these sojourners, these exiles, these pilgrims. We Christians are not in our home here on earth. We're just passing through. Well, that's what the song says. We're not on the interstate of life. We do have responsibilities and opportunities that are unique in the Christian experience here on this earth. We live by faith and not by sight. And I want you to consider this. We only have this time here on earth to live by faith. It's only here and now in this life that we live a life of faith. In heaven, the opportunity to please God through faith will no longer be there. Our hope of eternal life will be a reality. It'll be our daily experience. It will be face to face with Christ, my Savior. Angels are extremely curious about living a life of faith. You see, angels have always seen God in all His glory. They've seen the triune God. They've seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the fallen angels attest to that when they see Jesus Christ here in this earth. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We are the only creatures that have this opportunity to live by faith. And we do it now during this lifetime. So, how do we live in this world as pilgrims and sojourners? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through chapter 3, verse 7, John Phillips gives us a little outline. He says we have our formal obligations and opportunities. They're with government and employment. Joe Perriel was the one that talked to us about this. Then last week I spoke about our family obligations and opportunities as wife and as husband. Now, in 1 Peter chapters 3, verses 8 through 12, we have our fellowship obligations and opportunities. We have teaching from Peter, and to make sure I keep the alliteration, teaching from Psalms. No, 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 no. No, teaching from Psalms. Correct in the letter, but not in the pronunciation. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this has been a long introduction, and I hope that the foundation that's laid here will be helpful as we go through this portion of Scripture. Thank you for uh, the blessing of having us go through this world and of looking forward to our eternal home. Father Mike Merritt was the one who was to teach this lesson today. Our hearts are aching, and we do pray for Mike and for Kathy, your comfort and help during this time. Bless the assembly, we pray. I'm, I'm just so sorry to hear of Lois having a more difficult time with the infusion that she had. We pray for her, dear God. Pray that 
things will go as smoothly and well during these last several treatments. And we do pray for Margie Reed. Thank you for the way in which the treatments went for her this past Friday. Dear Lord, we are a needy people, and we bring that to you today. And just ask for your help for us as we lovingly care, support, and help one another. In Jesus' name, amen. As we read this passage from 1 Peter, let's remember who the human authors are that are used by the Holy Spirit. The authors are Peter and David. Peter quotes David at length in this section of Scripture. So let's think about these two men. We have two liars. We have two deniers. One used his power to dominate and abuse a married woman following with the murder of her husband. One was a coward, rejecting his freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ because of his fear for the Jews in Antioch. All these things happened in their lives after they had placed their faith in God for their salvation. Let me repeat that. All of the sins that I have just listed, all of those things that we think about in connection with Peter and with David happened after they had placed their faith in God for their salvation. Peter and David were works in progress in their lives of faith. This is so very encouraging to me as I read this scripture and as I give this message this morning. Please read with me, follow along with me as I read 1 Peter 8, 3, 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For, and here's the quote from David from Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit or speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. May God bless the public reading of his word this morning. Before going into the message, I must confess to all of you my difficulty in obeying these directives from the Holy Spirit through Peter and through David that we find in Psalm 34. As I have read verses 8 and 9, I'm convicted of my failure to conduct myself as a pilgrim that is characterized by the actions and qualities that are listed in a consistent manner to all my fellow Christians. Even today, as I speak to you, I am a work in progress in connection with my fellowship obligations. Please pray for me. Perhaps some of you can identify with me as we go through with what Peter and David and the Holy Spirit has to say to us. Perhaps we need to be in prayer for one another. How I thank God this morning for saving grace. How I thank God for His sustaining grace. How I thank God for His sanctifying, the growing grace that we Christians have. I can remember Bob Clark speaking about Zechariah from this pulpit and crying out, It's all of grace! And I say that to you this morning. In my life, it's all of grace. I'm saved. I'm sustained. And praise God, the process of sanctification by God's grace is going on. Let's read verses 8 and 9 together. 
Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to you, this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. I don't find a need for a great deal of comment in connection with what is plainly stated for us. The English is generally just as good as the Greek with most of the words and phrases. The word of God is near you. It's near us, even in our mouth. Read it and obey it. Let's go through the passage together. Finally, is how Peter starts out. He's summing up what's been instructed about a pilgrim walk. He's told us about government, about the situation in connection with employment, about family. And now he's saying, finally. Peter has told us about our pilgrim walk. And now there's a final statement about our walk responsibilities and opportunities. Finally, all of you. The text tells us this is for all Christians. This is not dealing with the world. It's not dealing with the unsaved, but with all Christians in the church. In other words, what you're hearing this morning is for us, for me and for you. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, or perhaps it reads, be of the same mind. Now, very quickly, it's almost comical as you read the commentaries, they very swiftly come in here and say, this does not mean we all have to agree on everything. There are many areas of disagreement among Christians which are not essential, such as the timing of the Lord's return, where God's sovereignty ends and human responsibility begins in our lives. Is the church a spiritual Israel or a separate creation in God's dealing with the human race? The use of spiritual gifts, what are they? What's active today? How are they to be used? And many other issues. Unity of mind does not mean unity, uniformity of thinking about every topic, either in the Scripture or outside the Scripture. We will not bend on the person, work, and offices of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will not bend on salvation alone, in Christ alone, through His substitutionary work in the cross for us alone. There are other essentials, but let's take a quote from St. Augustine and apply it here. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Now this quote quickly begs an argument. What are the essentials and who decides what the essentials are? This is not the sermon for that discussion at this time. It goes on here in the passage in verse 8. Sympathy. The idea that's expressed here is suffering with someone. It's also sharing in joy and sorrow. I just pause here, dear brethren, and say, God has given us copious opportunities to be sympathetic over this past three years. We think of the tragedies that have happened as far as the nation and the world in connection with the awful plague of COVID and the effect that it has had upon economies. We think of the situation here in our own assembly with so many ill, desperately ill. And what God is giving to us is a gift of opportunity to learn to be sympathetic. And he's exhorting us here to have sympathy. Brotherly love, it says. The word for love here is not agape, it's phileo. 
fondness. We're to be fond of each other. Peter may easily have chosen this word because of how he and the Lord had an exchange in John 21. Peter, do you love me with a love that only God can give? Lord, you know I'm fond of you, phileo. Then feed my lambs. And the dialogue goes on. Feed my sheep. There's this exchange of this kind of love. We should be genuinely fond of one another. Tender heart. Tender hearted. The only other time in the New Testament that this word is used is Ephesians 4.32. It was Heather's favorite verse as a little four-year-old girl as she would navigate the siblings that were older. She thought they were getting a little rough with her and she would say, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. (laughs) Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. A humble mind, and I'll admit, this is where I really struggle. What it means is uh, be courteous, be friendly, be considerate. And I have found this aspect of being courteous to be something that is a block to discussing truth. Truth in relationships. And I struggle with this. I've often found that niceness trumps those things that need to be talked about. And I don't like it. And I get irritated. And I'm being instructed here to not be that way. Please pray for me. Not rendering evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. How wonderful it was to have Joe Perio's thoughts a few weeks ago. He named the little girl Sarah. Sarah was the girl between 12 and 16 years of age who was taken by the Assyrians out of Israel And she was forced into slavery, into servanthood. And she ended up in the home of Naaman, the secretary of defense to the Assyrian king, the general that would lead the armies forward. And that little girl torn away from her family and hundreds of miles away from home. How easily could Sarah have said, Huh, this guy's a leper. You know what would happen to him in Israel? He'd be completely banished from us. Well, may God completely banish him from my life. He took me away from my life in Israel. May God remove him from his life here in Assyria. May his leprosy become a curse to him and a curse to all that associate with him. You think I'm going to help this guy out in any way? I'll do my duty and that is it. But instead... (laughs) Little Sarah, not returning evil for evil, not reviling for the reviling that she's received. She, in sympathy, says to the woman that she's waiting on, Mrs. Naaman, oh, Mrs. Naaman, my heart, it hurts so badly for your husband and the situation that he's in. If only he would have contact with the great prophet that's there in Israel. Why, he could cleanse him of his leprosy instantly. That's the kind of attitude that we're instructed to have here. Now we want to remember that as Peter is writing this, he's writing to Christians. Here's the implication in Peter writing these things to the Jewish Christians in eastern, central, and western Turkey. There were problems among the Christians. They did not have unity of mind. They did not have sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, humble minds, and they were rendering evil for evil, and they were reviling one another. How do you know that, Phil? Because Peter wrote it in this letter. If there weren't a problem there, he would have commended them. 
commended them as Paul does in First and Second Thessalonians for the people's great faith, for their love for one another, for their encouragement for one another, for the way they were a testimony to those that were without. But here Peter is writing to these Jewish Christians, you've got problems. And here's the solutions to these problems. This is the way you're to behave. Peter knows his audience, and they know Peter. This portion is being taught to us at Northern Hills Bible Chapel. For some reason, several months ago, God directed we elders to teach this portion at the Bible Hour time. And at this time in our fellowship's history, I wonder why he did that. We need to look at what is being taught with the thought that God knows us and has something for us to consider and act upon. May the Holy Spirit of God teach us, give us insight, and prepare us to obey what is being taught in this passage in the book of First Peter. I don't say that with any kind of personal agenda here. All I'm saying is Peter wrote to a group of Christians and they were in need of help as far as their relationships with one another. And it may be now, 2,000 years later, God is saying to this group, I directed the elders to have this taught to you for the purpose of us considering how it is that we live as pilgrims going through the world and how we relate to one another in this fellowship. Now let's look at the quote from Psalm 34. The closing thought on the conduct of the pilgrim or sojourner, Peter reaches back in the Old Testament to a psalm of David, Psalm 34. The historical inscription at the head of this psalm, and there are several psalms that have these kinds of historical inscriptions on them, It gives us the precise occasion or motivation for David writing this psalm. This is what the inscription says of David when he changed his behavior before the king of Gath, Abimelech, so that the king of Gath drove David out and David went away. David would look back on this episode in his life with a great deal of regret for his lies, his deception, his foolishness, and his unwise behavior and their consequences. He takes the lessons from this occasion and writes them in a hymn for all Israel to sing. Can you imagine that? David takes his great failure and he puts it into a hymn so that everyone in Israel will sing those things. It reminds me of William Cooper's admission in the last verses, verse of Evan's favorite hymn, number 160 in the blue hymnal. There's a fountain filled with blood. This is what Cooper says. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing thy power to save. Cooper was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had great faith, but he was afflicted from time to time with terrible fits of depression, bouts of insanity, speaking awful words of profanity and foul language. He also had times of clarity, insight, compassion and understanding. He wrote many wonderful Christian hymns and poems. There is a fountain being the most famous and for us here at Northern Hills, certainly the most sung among us. Cooper admits who he is and the weakness that he has in a hymn. And we sing it. There are several of these. Uh, There's 174 here in the blue hymnal. In tenderness, he sought me. The person that wrote the poem is Spencer Walton, William Spencer Walton. In tenderness, he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again. William Spencer Walton was a man that was born into a Christian home. He had very poor health as a child. His parents sent him on a long sea trip to breathe in the sea air. It went to Australia, Tasmania, India, Sri Lanka, and then back to London. 
Four years later, at the age of 15, his father was on a similar trip and his father was swept off the ship and died at sea. Spencer describes himself, Spencer Walton describes himself as a dead professor and a non-possessor. He pretended to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would teach children in Sunday school and he would arrive at Sunday school bleary-eyed and his head breaking from the hangover he had from the late parting that he had done. A thorough and complete hypocrite. And in his 20s, after not seeing a friend for a few days, he went and knocked on his office door. And he said, is so-and-so in? Yes, he's in all right. He's in his grave. He died. Died from cholera. One day here and the next day gone. And that so struck William Spencer Walton that he immediately went to spiritual men and said, Sir, how do I get to God? And he became a believer. But he writes down his failures in his hymn. In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin. David now does this in his circumstances in Psalm 34. David is being chased by King Saul with the intent of Saul to kill him. Jonathan, Saul's son, has told David just exactly what's what's going to happen. So David runs to the wilderness and as he's running, he comes to Nob, the place where the tabernacle is. And there he comes in contact with Ahimelech, the priest, and other priests are there. Ahimelech is nervous. Why have you come here by yourself like this? Oh, the king has sent me on a particular errand. And he told me specifically not to tell anyone else just exactly what's involved in the errand. And these men are with me to accomplish just exactly what I'm supposed to do. Now, do you have anything to eat? The only thing we have is the bread that we have on the table for showbread. And that's only for the priest. We'll take that. Do you have a weapon here? Yes, we do. It's the sword of Goliath, the giant that you killed. I'll take it. There's no other sword like it. And then David now goes to the southwest. And he goes to, of all places in the Philistine territory, Gath. And there in Gath, the home of Goliath of Gath, with the sword of Goliath of Gath, David gets recognized. Man, what an amazing thing. (laughs) And it's told to the king. And this is what David does. It says specifically in the scripture, he pretends to be insane. He scratches on the doors of the gates and leaves marks there. The scratches are so intense with his fingernails that he leaves marks there. He lets spittle run down into his beard. And then the humor comes into the situation. The king of Gath says, Don't I have enough madmen around here? And you bring me this fellow to act like this in front of me? Get this guy out of here. And David leaves. In the meantime, Saul is chasing David and there was a man who witnessed the conversation between David and the priest. And it's a man named Doag. Doeg is an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. And he tells Saul just exactly what happened. And Saul requires the priest Ahimelech to come before him. And he inquires of Ahimelech, have you had any contact with David? Well, of course I have. See, Ahimelech's very secure in the lie that David's told him. I'm on the king's business. Of course I have. Why? He's your son-in-law. He's the captain of your guard. There's no one trusted in your home like David. Is this the first time he's inquired of me? No. He's inquired of me many times. And I don't know anything about any business that he went, whether a little or a lot. I know nothing. And Saul in his rage accuses Ahimelech and the other priests of being in rebellion against the king, and he orders their execution. 
And not a single one of his guards will do it. But Doeg the Edomite steps forward and kills 84 other priests. Now there's one that runs away, gets away in this situation. And he runs to David and tells David what's happened. Can you imagine what David is thinking at this time? If I'd only told the truth. If I'd only said what was really happening. If I'd only taken Ahimelech into my confidence and said to him, I'm being pursued by Saul. It was not a secret. Saul had done this before. I'm being pursued by the king and I have to get away. Now the men that are with me were hungry. And I do need a weapon. If only he had told that, then perhaps Ahimelech and the other priests' lives could have been spared. And David thinks about his conduct before a Gentile king, acting like an insane fool. And now he writes Psalm 34. It is no wonder that in verse 6 we find this in the psalm. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Peter pulls out verses 12 through 16, and they read, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? If you desire that, then do this. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Can you imagine Peter writing down these words and including them in the letter as he looks back to his life 20 or 25 years earlier and thinks about a scene outside of Caiaphas' home where the Lord Jesus Christ is being put on false trial in the early hours of the morning and Peter is asked three times, does he know the Lord Jesus Christ? And he lies and lies and swears and curses and lies a final time before the cock crows. Peter says, if you desire to live, love life, to have life and love many days, this is what you should do. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. And I guess he could have parenthetically said, and I know this by personal experience. As pilgrims and sojourners traveling through this temporary home in this world to our glorious eternal home in heaven. This is how we're to love many days and see good. It's how we're to conduct ourselves in the world. Now, Ryan gave us an assignment in the introductory message to this book. He encouraged us to read First Peter through and through, over and over during the weeks we're studying this portion of Scripture. I have found, as I have done that, that the reading flows more and more easily for me. I'm anticipating what's to come in the book, in the next section, the next chapter. The various themes of the book open up to me much more easily. My heart, mind, and soul are blessed as I've done that. May God bless all of us as we follow the instruction that Ryan gave to us. Now, I have an assignment for you today, a homework assignment. On the back of the outline, I've got this. Thoughts to consider from 1 Peter 3, 8-12. I've written the various thoughts Peter has for us in this summary. I'd like us to go over these and think about them in connection with our pilgrim walk, make an evaluation of how we're doing, pray about our pilgrim walk, and how the Lord would help us, direct us, and support us in our formal obligations, opportunities, our family obligations and opportunities and our fellowship obligations and opportunities. 
If we can go over these with someone else, I believe it would be helpful. Dear singles here in the fellowship, I or one of the other elders will be glad to go over these with you as we share together. And if not an elder, then I would believe there are other people here in the fellowship that would gladly go over this, over the Holy Spirit's thoughts about our behaviors and attitudes of heart as we continue on our sojourn to our heavenly home. May the Spirit of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and our Heavenly Father help us all. We are all works in progress. Alex Strauch said it. We're in the quarry right now. We're not smooth stones. We're not stones that are perfectly shaped. It's the dust, the dirt, the noise of the quarry that we're in right now. God is preparing us to be fitted into the wonderful building that God is assembling. Let's pray, please. Dear Father, the passage of Scripture here is about our our fellowship obligations and opportunities. Really, how we get along with one another. And You've given us very specific, direct things. I have... Uh, confess, dear Lord, I have problems in these areas. Please help me. There may be others here who are saying the same thing. Thank you, dear God, for such practical, such specific things that we're to do. And dear Lord, help us to be obedient. Help us, give us strength to do these things that you've directed us to do. For your glory, for your praise, for us to love life and to live uh, loving these lives in the days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.